church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McLean. You wrestle with the sinner's restless heart. You lead us by still waters and to mercy. And nothing can keep us apart. So remember your people. Remember your children. Remember your promise, oh God. Buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you. That uh, intro song was Matt Marr and Your Grace is Enough. Now, prayerfully, I'm trying to bring in Matt Marr for the next Fullness of Truth Catholic Conference in Houston coming up on November the 20th and the 21st. I'm hoping to hear back from Matt Marr's group pretty soon, so I ask you to say a little prayer that I can make that happen. Matt is a is a huge Christian recording artist who happens to be a devout, practicing Catholic and a great witness for the faith in Christ Church. And so I'm hoping to share him with those who attend the Fullness of Truth Conference. Well, today we pick up our, our study of salvation history, the economy of salvation history, oikonomia, right? As we go through A Father Who Keeps His Promises by Dr. Scott Hahn. We are still in Chapter 6. It seems like we've been in Chapter 6 for some time now. I seem to have uh, caught in a little lull where I, I can't get us to move forward. But honestly, every time uh, I, I come across a little nugget, the next increment of, uh, of the storyline, and we're talking about Jacob, and we'll, we're going to pick him up here in a minute, but I just there's just so much going on that I kind of want to stop and look at each of those events by themselves and, and just meditate on them for a few. So that's why we're still in chapter six. It seems like the previous chapters, we moved along much faster and we'll probably pick up the, the pace in the near future. But as always, before we begin our study, let us say a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory and power and grace be to you, almighty God. May your glory be manifest, not ours. 
May we come and sit quietly at your feet and study you, to learn from you, to absorb you, to be one with you, to be in communion with you. May you fill our hearts full of your Holy Spirit. May we learn to love as you love, to be merciful as you are merciful, to forgive as you forgive. Oh, Father, you who loved us as we are yet still in our sins and our sinners, you loved us so much that you died on a cross for us, that you descended from heaven, took upon flesh, tabernacled amongst us, and went to the cross as we screamed shouts of insult to you and spat upon you and tore your flesh, nailed you to a tree, and there you died, rose again, and ascended one more time to heaven and sat down at the right hand of glory so that you might mediate for us for all time in heaven perpetually as the Lamb standing as if slain. Praise you, my Lord. Praise you. We come before you to ask for your mercy on us poor sinners. The Holy Spirit will enlighten us to learn your word and let it rest in our hearts that we might share this with all the world. I specifically ask you, and I pray for the intercession of Padre Pio on behalf of those who need conversion today, especially those men who are struggling with pornography addiction and those women who are also caught up in that scandalous sin. We ask for their for their conversion. We ask for them to be saved. They need an exodus from this. And so we ask Padre Pio to intercede. Gracious God, you blessed Padre Pio with the five wounds of Christ, making him an inspiring witness to the saving love of Jesus in our world and a powerful reminder to us of your infinite mercy and goodness. Through the heavenly intercession of St. Pio, I ask for the grace of conversion for all of those men and women who are caught in the scandal of pornography addiction. Help me, O Lord, to imitate Padre Pio's devout faith, prayerful holiness, patient forgiveness, and loving compassion towards others. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, last time we uh, we left off where Isaac had uh, supplanted Esau. He had Jacobed his brother and his father, and stealing not only the birthright, but also the blessing of the firstborn. Esau, although he he gave away his birthright so trivially, you know, so easily, he, he took a, a pottage of lentils in, in exchange for his birthright. But then he still wanted that blessing of the firstborn from his father, Isaac. So when Isaac sent him out into the field to, to hunt the game and to come back and make that savory stew that his father loved so much, uh, Esau was was ready to go. He was like, sure, let's do it. I can't wait. I want that blessing. Well, Rebekah, Isaac's wife and Esau and Jacob's mother, you know, heard the, heard what was going on. And she warned her her youngest son, Jacob, who was a, a fairer boy who hung around the tents, you know, and said, look, all right, go, go get the choicest lamb, the goat from the herd. Bring it back. We're going to. We're going to slaughter it. We're going to prepare this stew just the way Isaac likes it. And then I'm going to dress you up in some goat hair. So you're going to go in there and Isaac is going to give you the firstborn blessing over Esau. And that's exactly what happened. Isaac was Jacob. You see, he was old and his sight had left him. 
And so he felt the hairiness of the goat hair and assumed that it was his son Esau and not his son Jacob. Even though the voice sounded like Jacob, it was the hair of Esau that he felt. And so he was Jacob. He was supplanted. He was tricked by his son. And so Esau plotted to kill his brother because he wanted the blessing. And he was so sad. And your heart almost breaks for Esau listening to him. Is there no blessing for me? Even me also, please. There must be some blessing for me too. Oh, he got a blessing, but it was nothing like that that uh, Jacob received. Jacob received the blessing of Abraham. Esau received the blessing of servanthood to his brother. It was quite sad. So now, uh, Rebekah now worries that Jacob will marry a Canaanite woman, like his brother Esau had done. Esau had married two wives. And so that's where we left off, where, uh, you know, he was being sent out. And we pick up in Genesis chapter 28. In verse 1, it says, quote, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him, quote, You shall not marry one of the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram and to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went, to Padanaram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now, now that was uh, verses 1 through 5. Now, what's interesting is Esau recognizes that his folks, his, his mother and father, don't like his Hittite wives, his Canaanite wives. The fact that he has more than one is a problem all by itself. Polygamy is not good. It is wrong in sacred scripture. Now, you're not going to find a verse anywhere in the Old Testament that says polygamy is a sin or it's an evil, but it's inferred over and over again. In fact, you're not going to find a verse that gives you a positive reference to uh, polygamy. There's no favorable light in marrying more than one woman. In fact, from the very beginning, as Jesus says in the Gospels, that man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. The two shall become one. And what happens there with Adam and Eve? They are the first married couple. Okay, then we move in to uh, their children, Cain, who through his evil generation comes polygamy for the first time. So, that's a problem, that Esau has more than one wife. And the fact that they're both Canaanite women, that makes it even worse. And so he, he catches wind that his parents don't want Jacob to marry a Canaanite woman. So they're sending him back to Haran, back to Laban, to marry a, a, a daughter of Laban of their own people. And so what does he do? What does Esau do? Well, we're going to find out in verse 6 of Genesis 28. It says, quote, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he charged him, You shall not marry one of the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padanaram, so when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took her to a wife, and 
he went to Ishmael and took to wife, beside the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neoboth. So he takes yet another wife in hopes of appeasing his parents, in hopes of gaining favor from his own father. The adage, two wrongs don't make a right, you know, the ends don't justify the means is another way of saying it. It comes to mind here. You know, Esau, you should have recognized the fact that you were married to two women. That's a problem. And of those women, you're married to Canaanite women. Okay, notorious for their evil, idolatrous ways. And as a son of Isaac, who is a son of Abraham, who received the promises from God, you know, who was sent out from his place in Ur all the way to occupy this land, whose descendants would occupy, even though you didn't receive the blessing of the firstborn, Esau, you're still a part of that family line. And therefore, you serve the one true God, and that sets you apart. From all others. That, isn't that what you want to say to Esau? You know, again, I kind of feel sorry for the guy. He got a bum deal. His mind wasn't in the game and he wasn't focused. That's true. And, you know, he made his bed and he's going to have to lie on it. I get it. But at the same time, my heart kind of breaks for Esau. The, the sadness of a, of a boy with his father wanting the blessing and couldn't receive it. And here, recognizing that he was breaking the heart of his father and mother by having married these Hittite women. And so he tries to appease them a little bit. At least that's how I see it, you know, by going and marrying a a family member. Because Ishmael was a family member. Although there must have been some strained relations there. Because as you recall, Ishmael was cast out so that only Isaac remained as the only son. So I'm not sure how that family politic played out, but uh, that I thought was Esau's, you know, meager attempt to appease his father. But Jacob sets out, you know, he was charged by his father to go to the city of Haran, where Laban, the brother of his mother, lived and had daughters. And he was to marry one of those daughters. You know, what was fascinating is they're living in Beersheba and Haran is way, way, way up to the north. And uh, he makes it as far as Bethel. It's about 40 plus miles he makes in in about a day, as far as I can tell from the text. That's a long hike for a day. Okay. I served in the Marine Corps. And when we went on 30 mile hikes, that was uh, your feet were falling off of you by that point. But we had boots. Okay. Jacob didn't have boots. He might have had sandals. And that would have been worse, in my opinion. But he stops to camp out under the stars for the night in a little rocky outcrop. And he takes a, a, a stone and sets it as a pillow under his head. Now, here is where he has his first major encounter with God. A personal encounter, if you will. In verse 10, quote, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and of the, and the God of Isaac. And the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. 
and your descendants shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And by you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth bless themselves. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done that of which I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So that was uh, verses 10 through 17. Now, this is the very blessing of Abraham that Isaac wished his son Jacob to receive back in uh, verses 3 and 4. Isaac gives that, he passes that blessing on, the blessing of Abraham, that threefold blessing. He passes that on to Jacob, who now becomes the firstborn or receives that firstborn blessing. And then when he sends him out to, to find his wife, to start his company of peoples, he 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 blesses him again with this Abrahamic blessing, wishes that God will, will pass this blessing on to his son Jacob. And here he receives it. But what's interesting is the place where he receives it and all of the imagery that's going on. We're going to see that this imagery is is related to the temple. It's related to the priesthood, and it finds its fulfillment in Christ. The question here is, will Jacob have the same faith that, that Abraham had? He receives this blessing from Abraham to become a nation of peoples, to possess land, whose name will be great. He receives this blessing, but Abraham, when he received the blessing, he stepped out in faith. Abraham was willing to offer up his only son Isaac. What will Jacob be willing to do? How does Jacob receive it? Does he have the same faith as Abraham, his grandfather? Or does Jacob try to keep his options open? True to his name, Jacob. In verse 18, we read, quote, so Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone which he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, quote, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house, and all that thou givest me I will give the tenth to thee. Now Dr. Hahn, in uh, chapter 6 of A Father Who Keeps His Promises, found on page uh, 2, or I'm sorry, 115, he says, quote, Sound familiar? God the Father evidently wanted to communicate his promises directly to the next generation. Jacob's response is classic. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He named the place Bethel, which means the house of God, and made a vow that if God kept all these promises, then the Lord would be his God. Notice Jacob's escape clause. I take it. He wasn't fully convinced that these 
far-fetched pledges would come to pass. The trickster's faith wavered a bit, perhaps from a bad conscience for his dealings with his father and brother. In any case, faith seemed to overrule skepticism. Having experienced a life-changing encounter with the Lord of the universe, Jacob responded in several practical ways. He set up a stone for a pillar and declared that if he returned to his father's house in peace, that stone would become God's house. He also promised to give God a tenth of everything he received. Of course, a tenth of nothing is nothing, so maybe he didn't have anything to lose. Unquote. You see, Dr. Holland picks up right away on the fact that Jacob is keeping his options open. He's giving himself a way out of this deal with God, a way out of uh, this encounter with God. Don't we all do that? Every day, I think we, we find ways to rationalize, to give ourselves a way out of our obligations to act responsibly, to act morally upright. You know, if uh, and this is true, you know, of all of us, every single one of us, we have this tendency to do this, to justify our actions, our behaviors, you know, or how about this? How about we justify the actions or behaviors of those closest to us? our loved ones, our spouses. How about our children? Maybe we have grown children who've made very bad choices. Maybe they live in adulterous relationships or improper relationships. Maybe they've committed uh, untold number of sins and we now somehow rationalize their behavior because we can't bear the thought of standing against our own flesh and blood, our own family, our own loved ones. Jacob seems to be giving himself an out too. You know, if God keeps his promises, then I will do such and such. Okay, well, this is slightly different from the faith of Abraham. And I think that's uh, an interesting point, but Jacob is not done on his journey. He still has some room to grow here, and we're going to see that growth happen in the near future. But I want to point now to all the illusions Okay, there's lots of illusions going on here. The allusions to the temple, allusions to the priesthood, and the Targums uh, for Genesis 28, and I think it actually says Genesis 29 in the Targums. It starts off with this, And he prayed in the place of the house of the sanctuary and lodged there because the sun had gone down. Now, what I thought was interesting about that was the fact that it clearly links us to the temple. It links Jacob's encounter with God with this ladder on the stone there where the temple is to be built, the sanctuary. Now, it's the illusions, not the reality that I want to talk about. The, the, the temple illusions, the priestly illusions, that's what I find the most fascinating. The rock, well, the temple's built on a rock, okay? That rock that Abraham would offer up his own son Isaac on, that same rock or that same mountaintop where our Lord would one day be offered up as sacrifice, the true and fulfilled Isaac, who who was a prototype, the type of the one to come, Christ being the antitype or the fulfillment of Isaac. So this is very significant, the fact that this rock is there and this this ladder is up is on it, okay? This ladder, in some places, according to some uh, commentaries, refers to like a mountain. 
you know, this is sort of a mountain, the God's mountain. That mountain imagery reminds us of Daniel's vision in the book of Daniel. You know, Daniel chapter 7, this mountain that takes over this pebble that becomes a stone that becomes a mountain that takes over all of the world. That is the kingdom of the Messiah. That is Jesus' kingdom that would come. So this ladder has that sort of illusion or imagery to it. But ascending and descending angels, just like ministerial priests, okay? Now, angels, according to the uh, comment on Hebrews 1.14 of the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible, are protectors of the saints, mediators of grace, and ministers who offer the prayers of God's people in heaven. For instance, if we looked at the book of Revelation, we see angels offering prayers, incense, which are the prayers of the faithful to God. They're ascending to the throne and offering this incense prayer. Offering to God. We see the same thing in the ministerial priesthood of the Old Testament. You know, twice a day, every day, these ministerial priests offered prayers and benedictions. Once at 9 a.m. and again at 3 p.m. Okay, these were the the hours of prayer. We we see them referenced in the book of Acts, for instance. Acts chapter 2, when uh, the, the Shekinah glory poured itself out and the Holy Spirit upon those in the upper room. And they went forth and they started to prophesy and speak in tongues and tongues of fire. And and they they ingathered all those faithful who had come from all every country under heaven there to offer sacrifice and prayer and to keep the feast in the temple. They were there for the hour of prayer at 9 a.m. We talked about that. And what happened? 3,000 people came in, which was a fulfillment of the 3,000 who were lost at the mountain of Sinai. So these parallels, these links are phenomenal. But these angels have that same uh, ministerial uh, duty, like the priests in the Old Testament who who ascended like Zechariah in Luke 1, who went in and ascended to the throne there in the temple, went inside, inside the sanctuary to offer up this incense prayer and encountered the angel Gabriel. Okay, well, that's the illusion. That's the imagery going on there. I find that very fascinating because all of this, all of it, this, these are fulfilled completely and perfectly in Christ. Jacob, who is, a, who is one of the patriarchs, encounters God in a dream, in a very unique place where the temple and the priesthood and heaven all come to meet. Heaven and earth collide. Okay, many times we've talked about heaven and earth colliding, but in John one fifty one, Jesus alludes to this dream of Jacob's. He says, quote, And he said to them, or to him rather, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Unquote. Jesus puts himself at the very center of Jacob's vision. He is the place where heaven touches down on earth. Hebrews 12, 1, that we are all gathered, the great cloud of, of witnesses, the saints, the angels who surround us. That's Hebrews 12, 1. That chapter tells us that we are gathered in the ecclesia, the church of the Lamb. That is phenomenal and fascinating because where Jesus is, heaven touches down on earth. They collide, they come together. That is the mass 
where his body is being offered up and consecrated. The priest who speaks the words, This is my body. We are at the foot of Calvary. Not a new Calvary, not a different Calvary, the same Calvary. Time ceases to exist, and we have come to the ecclesia of the firstborn who is on his throne. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth touch down. It is his body that is the true house of God. He told that to the, the chief priest. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. He is the true holy of holies. He is the mediator through whom the angels exercise their ministry. Even the Catechism makes this point very clear, that the angels, they surround him. Wherever he goes, they're ministering to him. He is their king. They worship and serve him. The lamb standing as if slain in Revelation 5. These angels, they serve the firstborn. So, at the heart of Jacob's encounter with God, this latter who brings us the imagery of the temple and the ministering angels as priests, their fulfillment is made explicitly clear in the words of our Lord, who says in John one fifty one, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That is awesome! Jacob's encounter with God is a foreshadowing to our Lord Jesus Christ. Powerful stuff. Well, that's all we have time for for this week. I really kind of wish I could sit and just meditate on that further, but we're going to have to take this up again next time. Until then, I'm praying for you. Stop by CatholicHack.com for the links in the show notes, and may God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground. Underground.